Hi, Molly. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It was really great to hear your story. Um, You had said so much good stuff. I have so much that I want to talk to you about, um, but I just always want to take time in the beginning just to really extend like a gratitude and appreciation for your willingness to um, be vulnerable with your story and reach out to me and just decide that this is something that you wanted to do. So again, really thank you so much for being here. Oh, my pleasure. Really. Thank you. Thank you for having this whole podcast in the first place. It's a phenomenal resource. So where I want to start, like I said, there's a lot that I want to talk about, but I want to start with um, the idea of puberty. So you had mentioned in your, in your story that a lot of, while you may have been hearing like messages from your family or from the culture of where you lived before puberty, it was during puberty when like hormones shift and body starts to change that um, you started to kind of have a new understanding of what your your body and what what it looked like and what that could potentially mean. Um, and I think it's important to talk about just because um, for a lot of reasons, but I think that a lot of people's eating disorders start around puberty, whether or not they are like full-blown eating disorders at puberty or whether it's just mm-hmm. like little seeds start to be planted around then. Um, but I do think it's a it's something important to note and um, particularly around the culture that we live in, whether it's LA or not, but just like this westernized society of the message that young girls get about hitting puberty. And I remember, you know, one of my friend's daughters just kind of went, is, is going through puberty now. And my friend started to get concerned because she started to notice these behaviors in her daughter because her daughter was mortified to be going through this. And I think that's, mm. there's really like, that's the message that little girls get. There's like this fear or this embarrassment or shame or like right, right. around getting their period. And there's such a disconnect in like what it actually means to now have your body be able to do what it's able to do. Um, Right. Because well, what it means in the the context is, Hey, you're ready to promote yourself uh, and your sexuality at this point. So, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, hide all of the mechanisms that are required to do that, but please promote the sexuality because that's the value. Yeah. And I remember, I actually, we didn't just talk about this, but I remember like in retrospect, when I did a lot of digging about my eating disorder, mine was so much about not like I, I, I mainly had anorexia and it was about losing weight so that I was no longer, I no longer had womanly features. Like it, I was so embarrassed to have mm-hmm. them that I lost, I was trying to not ever have breasts or never have like my weight distribute in a way that people might find attractive because that freaked the hell out of me. Um, because what does it mean to you to have breasts? Um, at the time, I don't know, but I, I think I didn't want that attention from men. Like I think it meant mm-hmm. that suddenly people were going to be looking at my body in a way that I was uncomfortable with. And um, so I think that's a, a conversation to be had in terms of like, I don't know if you have like any real like memories around like thoughts that you might've had at the time, but just like from a bigger cultural standpoint of what are we telling young girls around that time in their lives? And, you know, how might we be able to do it a little bit differently? Mm -hmm. It's such a, it's such a complicated topic. Anyhow, that any, I think any one of us in approaching this are going to do it uh, really clumsily um, because there's, there's no way to present it outside of the cultural like the, the zeitgeist that we deal with around sexuality, it's uh, it's really 
difficult to present that to um, a young girl about to go through this. It's complicated. Um, you know, I, I think about this a lot in the context of, you know, how do we tell parents to support their, their kids through eating disorders? And I think it's this, it, the thing that we often say is your modeling is so crucial here. What you're modeling in terms of uh, your food intake, your, your comments on your body, et cetera, the way you behave is going to send the message to your child about what they can do, what's appropriate, what's helpful. And I think the same goes for this kind of conversation. You know, the way you're approaching that conversation, um, partially about content, but a lot about delivery. How how approachable is the subject? How easy? How gentle? Um, how casual? In fact, um, because there there's a <laughs> there's a sense that that's like a ritualized conversation, uh, which in and of itself tends to turn up the volume on shame a little bit, mm -hmm. rather than um, I think inviting the normalcy and uh, even dare I say like uh, earth mother spirituality. And I, I say that because I have, uh, I'm sure there are better words for that. I, I don't mean it um, in a belittling way. I really mean the energy of uh, being able to talk about this is an organic process. This is supposed to happen. This is, this is a growth thing. Mm -hmm. There's, there's no shame in this. Um, and, and to not even have to say that, but to present it in such a way where it's clear, you know, in the same way that we would talk about, What's your favorite TV show? Oh, right. This is why I really like it. It's really well written and funny. There's no shame in that conversation. Uh, and there needn't be in, in this. We're just talking back. I also think a lot of times what happens is parents don't want to have that conversation. So they just let health class have that conversation. And then it's like <laughs> the first time you hear okay. it, you're like with a bunch of 12 year old boys too. And it's like such an uncomfortable, weird situation. Um, right, right. So there are I only so many like, diagrams of uteruses that, that you can see and, and none of them are in that context going to help with the shame issue, really. Totally. And then like if you're learning about it and you're with a huge group of people and again, now the boys are laughing at you, it's like you're already mm -hmm. learning that this is something that you should be embarrassed at. Like there's something like weird or wrong about it. And so I think like, right, right. I love what you're saying about, you know, the delivery of it. And it's not just, it's, it's, there's so like I imagine, I don't have any kids, but I imagine if I ever do have a daughter and she, once she gets to this point, just like wanting to teach her about like the amazingness of the female body and what getting your period and having those hormones changes, like what that actually means. And it does mean yeah, that- Yeah, this is an indication of biological intelligence. Mm -hmm. this, that's the, the fucking miracle of it. It's, it's, <laughs> this is not- some mistake we've made and now we have to kind of take care of it so the guys don't notice what this mistake is. Anyway, this is this is fucking magic. Mm -hmm. um, I've, I've been saying this to my husband for a while, but we're, we've been talking about um, starting to try and have kids next year. And I got to say, I've been on the pills for the last few years and I hate it. And I loved hearing you talk about really understanding what the body does cyclically in the relationship to the earth. And I realized I, I hate being on the pill, but I could never really articulate mm -hmm. why I just feel like I like knowing that my body was doing what it was supposed to do. And you nailed it when you described the correlation between the female body and the tides and the earth and all that you can speak about it far more intelligently yeah, than I. It's, there's a, that's what I feel disconnected from. And what I love is like, so a lot of times it's like you're, 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 
period is described as your cycle, right? And it's like, there are cycles to the universe. Like there's the tides and there's the cycles of the moon. And like, there is this, there is a universal intelligence, no matter what you believe in, but like there are seasons depending on where you live, right? But there's like fall, fall, winter, spring, summer, fall, winter, spring, summer. There's intelligence in that. There's intelligence to the moon. There's intelligence to the tides. Mm -hmm. There's, you know, all living things have, like turtles know to like come to the shore and lay their eggs and leave and baby turtles are hatched and know to go to the ocean. And there's like so much intelligence and the female body is part of that. Like we have a cycle, just like the earth cycles. And you know, what I'm saying to you is like, one thing I love about being a woman is knowing that about myself. And I, I remember like I remember never being really connected to my femininity or my sexuality. And I tend to be more of like, um, like in yoga, like females can have male energy and males can have female energy. And I'm a woman that has a little bit more male energy. I'm kind of aggressive. It's just the way that I am. Mm-hmm. But when I really started to be in recovery and, and really I learned this mostly from yoga and meditation, but just like starting to get really in tune with like the fact that I am a woman and my natural cycle and how that relates to the world. And like the fact that like when a lot of women are around each other's, their cycles sync up. Like we don't do that other in any way other than the fact that there's just like, there's something bigger that's connecting all of us in that way. And mm-hmm. one thing that you and I were just talking about is like the female's body's meant to be connected to the universe. Like it's meant to move. It's meant to be fluid. Um, and it's meant to like rock a little bit. And so I was talking about You know, I have a meditation teacher who says that in meditation, like we're always taught that we have to sit still. And he was saying that like a female meditating, really like it's unnatural to sit still. Like there should be a little bit of a rock. There should be a little bit of a sway because there are cycles of a woman and like there is this fluctuation and this fluidity around us that it's almost not good for us to try to cut that off. And right, right, right. I I think in terms of an eating disorder, it's like, depending on what kind you have, or just really, I think this happens to most people. Well, not most people, but most kinds of eating disorders, the potential of actually losing your period and becoming disconnected. And, um, you know, what that actually does to your ability to connect on a more spiritual level. And I think it's a very big conversation. And, you know, I think one thing you said was like, you realized when you hit puberty that your body there was a power to your body and you were talking about at that point, like sexuality and like the sexualization of the female body and because of what it looked like, what that could mean. Um, and I, but it's also like, there is power to the female body, but it's power for what it does naturally, not just like, not really about how it looks, or at least that's the way that right, right. I feel like it should be. It's not what we're told. No, I agree with you. Uh, you know, what's really promoted, and I, I, I'll know a lot of this is kind of pedantic and basic, but female sexuality is like, that is on the billboard at all times. That's uh, that's what we are supposed to strive for. Um, and what you're what you're describing, boy, it, it's so much more beautiful and graceful and natural. Uh, and the, the idea that that would be the representation of strength would, it would take a, a huge cultural conversation to begin to shift that kind of value system. Um, but it's a it's a fucking beautiful intention. And I, the idea of imagining a, a generation of girls who are brought up with that translation of strength rather than like uh, being able to, to find the dress that accents the parts of your body that mm-hmm. we've considered are culturally appropriate to accent. Um, 
I lost the end of that sentence, but I promise it was good. <laughs> you get the point though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that there's, there's so much to that. And I think that, you know, even after puberty, I think there's still this, um, like almost embarrassment around like just women getting their period. And so this is the kind of what you and I were talking about. It's just, I remember for so long, whenever I'd have it, you know, if I needed to go to the bathroom to take care of it, I'd like hide the tampons or I hide the pads. And like, again, it's just teaching people shame, like put this in your pocket and go to the bathroom because God forbid someone sees exactly, a exactly. period this month. And, um, and I remember, I remember doing that. Um, and if I look back on why I did that, it was exclusively because I saw other people do it. I thought, oh, you're like, is it, is it rude or something? I, I guess it's rude. And realizing later, like, that's not actually within my value system at all. Right. Uh, not even close. So maybe I can be freed up and do that. And there's no problem. But realizing that that's, that's the message we send. And when I talk about modeling behaviors as parents uh, to a, a child who's about to go through that experience, that's exactly what I mean. You know, are we going to be ashamed and apologize for the fact that our bodies need to do these things and here's how we need to take care of them mm-hmm. or are we going to be really open and clear that yeah mom's got to take care of this one day you will too yeah you know i was listening to something recently um talking about the benefit of like fathers actually normalizing this for their daughters too Mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. like what it would be like for it's always like the mother is going to have this conversation and obviously there's reasons for that because she's probably a little bit more like in the know of like what needs to happen but like mm-hmm. what what power there might be if the men in the women in the girls' lives actually like were like oh, no this is male body like this is what you're meant to do and you know again taking some shame away from it like this is don't talk to your dad about this right okay so I, I, this is really interesting because when you first said that my instinct just here was like ah our father's supposed to have that conversation and then I realized right afterwards that that thought is as a result of shame and having sexualized this experience of, of what a woman goes through to the point where if she brings that conversation to her father or if the father brings that conversation to her daughter, it's considered inappropriate. Mm-hmm. When in fact, we're talking about a, a, a body cycle that is no more unusual than uh, like having a cold and needing Kleenex to manage your snot, you know, it, that it's all just as straightforward. But by uh, limiting that conversation to this is just a mother-daughter thing, it actually amps up the volume on the shame attached to it, that this is a conversation we have in private. Right. Yeah. That's, that's <laughs> kind of that what, like, that's kind of what I was listening and, and, and thinking about from hearing that conversation of like what power there might be if like even men like were willing to have like open dialogue, like you were saying, keeping it casual, like, yeah, this is just what your body does as a woman. Just like, mm-hmm. you know, boys mm-hmm. go through puberty too and their body shifts a lot too, but there's not like embarrassment around that as there is around, you know, the changes of the female body. And so I just think it's a, yeah. it's a good conversation to have. And I think it's something good for people to be aware of who are listening, whether it's because you've got children or whether it's because like, again, like I think, um, you know, I, I, I'm actually currently in the middle of an eating disorder coach training and um, it's run through Montenito. So Carolyn Costin's kind oh, of yeah, part of it. Yeah. And um, she was talking about how when girls in treatment get their periods again, she has like a big, like, it's a ceremony again, like welcome to womanhood. Like just so, oh. you know, it's not just like for like 
10-year-olds that are about to go through puberty. But, you know, I lost my period and I did get it back. And there's there was shame around that too. Like what it meant to mean that I could now have a period again. And it's just like, mm. like, what is it like to take shame out of that conversation? And like, welcome to like the tribe of women now. Like this is, yeah, this is yeah. natural. This is beautiful. This is now what you're capable of connection mm-hmm. and spirituality and childbirth and growing life. And I don't know, I watching so many of my friends have be pregnant and have babies recently have given me, I've just had gotten such a new perspective and like respect and just like love for my own body and what it's one day hopefully capable of. And um, I don't know. It's a conversation that I love to have because I think it's something like you were saying that if this could shift and we had a generation of women truly proud of their bodies um, and the, and the inherent softness that might be there and the connection to the universe and um, the connection to each other, what shifts might be able to be made in a world that is technically more aggressive and masculine, whether it's actually run by men, masculinity and the energy to it. Exactly. And you were saying that, you know, whether you have children or not, and when I think about the kind of tiny contributions to those that don't have children and thinking you're not, uh, you're not modeling this stuff, consider if you're the woman who tucks the tampon up her sleeve so nobody notices. I'm telling you, the little girl notices. Right. Anyone around you. It's not a secret. It's not a fucking secret if you're walking around with a tampon in your sleeve. Everyone no. kind of knows. Uh, right. It's not that subtle. And I but like consciously. of it. Is I was telling you now, like I make a point to like hold it up while I'm walking. Like on yes. purpose. It is a conscious like decision. Like, I'm not gonna be ashamed of this. Like I'm 31. Mm-hmm. Like this is normal. This is what should be happening right yes. now. Like once a month, this yes. is what should happen. Yes. Like I don't care if it makes you uncomfortable because that's your problem. That's not like that's not mine. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right. And it's interesting to hear you talk about um motherhood. Again, you know, that's that's definitely on the radar and then really realistically in the next year, year and a half. And I know that that's going to be the next major step in my recovery and relationship to my body. That's going to be challenging. You know, that's its own conversation, but I, mm-hmm. I, I'd be uh, remiss if I didn't acknowledge that. Yes, that's beautiful. And I'm terrified sure. and, and not, you know, just for the normal reasons of, Hey, reproduction might be scary, but no, this is going to be a huge challenge to, identity and exercise and what recovery is and my body in general is going to be a lot of work, but yeah, um, got to be done. Yeah. Like value system and priorities. And, you know, it's, it's just like, we're going to talk about this hopefully a little bit later, but like what it's like to approach that from the recovery perspective rather than from like right, the perspective right. of like, you know, you're, yes, if you're going to have a baby, your body is going to change. And it's like, how do you approach that from, the perspective of recovery and um, right, right, and, and do I allow my the, the intention and the purpose mm-hmm. to shift from oh I I, I want to build my shoulders so I'm stronger than in this particular fight versus no I got to relax and let my body build another fucking human right. <laughs> just to, like allow that priority to shift because I can envision an experience in which I'm holding on to that other priority and uh, you know my job is to just let go mm-hmm. see what happens trust that my body's going to figure this out both before and after. I mean, I imagine there's such a huge um, practice of surrender in that because like, you know, as soon as my friends were pregnant, like your body just starts doing stuff, (laughs) (laughs) you know, it just like starts doing stuff. And it's just like, and the purpose of it is to 
grow and sustain life. And um, it's, it was really beautiful for me to watch and them go through that. And it wasn't there and they don't have eating disorders. They never did. And it wasn't always comfortable for them either, but, um, mm-hmm. but like the will and that they had while it was happening and like the patience and the acceptance of it because of the purpose of it, just, you know, it was really profound for me to watch, especially two of my best friends just go through childbirth. One of them's got a six month old and one of them has a 13 month old now. So it's very recent. And oh, wow. uh, it was just amazing. Wow. Um, amazing. Um, so that's beautiful. Wow. Let's, um, let's switch gears a little bit. Cause I feel like I could, we could talk about this the whole time. Um, cause I have, <laughs> yeah. so let's switch gears a little bit. So one thing I love, you didn't really talk about, um, that much about what you do now and, and what you studied and what your profession is. And if you want to speak a little bit to that, by all means, go ahead. But I love your knowledge of, because of your studies and your job, how the brain chemistry and bulimia or eating disorders and larger picture, but specifically, I guess, in bulimia with the way that you were talking, um, like, what do you know that you can maybe briefly share a little bit more about brain chemistry, the neural pathways, like the reward pathways and how like binging and purging, like does actually Mm -hmm. get you into this like neural cycle and, um, like, are there ways of being able, I mean, I know there are, but like, what are the ways or some ways of maybe being able to get yourself out of that from a brain chemistry standpoint? Right. Well, I think the reason it's important to at least touch on the brain chemistry is to normalize this whole thing, that all addiction is really coming down to brain chemistry. And like, is there a, a psycho-spiritual emotional side to it? Yes, absolutely. And we really have to address the, the biological components as well. Um, anytime we do something pleasurable, there, there's going to be an impact on the reward center of the brain. Um, the opioid receptors are going to go fucking nuts. Um, and that happens with any pleasurable activity, whether it's, it's sex or eating or shooting dope or having a great conversation with a friend. All of those things end up um, rewarding the brain, basically. Uh, so in that sense, you'll hear some people saying, oh, eating disorders are addictions because everything is an addiction. That's true. Everything can be an addiction. But really, addiction is defined by the degree of obsession and suffering that comes as a result of those reward uh, of those reward centers lighting up. So in that sense, I can see the argument for addiction uh, not being correlated with eating disorders. But personally, I feel it is. But that's also because I, I tend to work in treatment and affiliation with the 12-step models, et cetera. Um, but I, I see the argument from both sides. I can make the argument from both sides. Um, so when, you know, when you're in a position, uh, like you're, you're just dealing with, um, uh, with drugs, you slam the dope and the opioid, excuse me, opioid receptors are going to completely light up. Um, and you will chase that repeatedly. And it's similar to, uh, you know, if you're going to have that conversation with a friend, that's really lovely. Yes. They're going to light up as well, but it's going to require something of you in order to do that. It's going to require your energy, your vulnerability, your connection, your uh, language, your time. Whereas shooting dope really isn't going to require too much in the moment. Yes, there is a lot of chaos around that lifestyle, but I'm speaking strictly brain chemistry here. Likewise, if you are binging, you're also going to have those receptors light up, and that's your body's response to carbohydrates and sugar. Uh, and then chasing that experience repeatedly, that's what just 
straight binge eating disorder looks like and you're dealing with then um, obsession and wanting to uh, wanting to get the dopamine rushing through the brain and uh, which looks like oh my god I want more ice cream but it's really about oh my god I want to reward my brain and here's the pleasurable way in which I'm going to do that uh, the the component to um, bulimia that I that connects with to addiction is that the purging part sedates the body. We get more of those feel-good chemicals, and it also ultimately ends up hitting the reward center as well because we experience relief. So there we have set up a perfect cycle of reward, relief, reward, relief, reward, relief. Um, and it requires these particular behaviors in order to get that reward. Here's the problem with that reward, though. It's destroying the body. In one way or another, it's destroying the body. So that's where the addictive component relates to um, uh, the, the brain chemistry of, uh, of eating disorders. Um, and the reason, this, the reason this becomes so addictive is not just because we're, uh, we're kind of held hostage by these chemicals, but it, it begins to create a series of neuropathways. If you think about uh, walking through tall grass every day, and you walk exactly the same path, eventually that grass is going to flatten down and you're going to have a pretty easy path. So to deviate from that path is going to take weed whacking and stomping and it's going to be a pain in the ass. So we've really found the path of least resistance when we find that, oh, this, this hits my reward center. This feels good. I have to do this in order to feel good. And that's the same path in tall grass. What we do in recovery is try and shift that neuropathway, which is hard on a thousand different levels. It's hard because we are fighting the chemistry and the instinct. It's hard because you don't have anything else to, like you don't have anywhere else you're going on that path yet. Like, well, I know what's at the end of the binge purge. You know, I'm, I, I might feel like shit, but I'm, I'm going down this road because there's rewards ultimately, but I don't even know what's on the other side of that other path. Why risk it? And one of the third reasons that it's hard to do that uh, is because we don't want to because it's, it's a tremendous amount of work. Um, if anyone had told me how much work I was gonna have to do in order to find a, like a quarter of the recovery I have now, I don't know that I could have signed up for it because fighting that brain chemistry and looking to redirect that neuropathway and build new ones, um, it takes a tremendous amount of work and um, encourage and those that choose to fight like that. Does that kind of answer your question? Yeah, for sure. And I, I especially love, okay. I think you're um, the visual, like you were just saying of like, if you walk in tall grass, it's like, that just becomes the path. I think that's a really good metaphor for it. Um, yeah. It, it really takes consciousness to go in a different direction because of the, the worn in neural pathway knows where it's going every time. That's the instinct. And what we're asked to do in recovery is pause, notice that you just had that instinct. Can you make a different choice? Mm-hmm. Sometimes we absolutely can't. Sometimes we're we're just pulled down that path and um, and we just fucking can't get out of it. Other times, though, we have that brief, weightless moment of will I, won't I? My brain is actually online. I might be able to make a different choice here, and that's scary. Yeah, that's really terrifying because if we're feeling that craving, the craving to binge, and for the first time, when someone's saying, "What if you don't?" What happens if you don't? And our response is usually, I don't fucking know. I've mm-hmm. never not binged. I've never not walked that path. 
So really, we're asking someone to go to a, what is potentially a very dark, scary, and unsurvivable place, or so they're thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 you know, you do that once, let's say it goes well once, and you survive to the other side, and you, you know, use a DBT skill or whatever, and you manage through it, then you have to do it again 40 seconds later when the, the, the craving comes up. Mm-hmm. So it is, it is a battle moment to moment to moment to moment um, that you are less and less a hostage of the more courage you can put into this work. Right. And like you said, it's like, it's, it's having to trust. Like someone's like, if you go this way, there's like, there's something real cool over there. And it's like, you can't see it. And in order to get there, like you said, you've got a weed whack and you've got to like go through brush and you've got to like, you know, there's so much that there's so much work that goes into that, that it is just, it feels easier to just walk the past, like you said, of least resistance, the one that it yeah, absolutely. already down. Um, it's reminding and me. It's the same idea. Go ahead. Sorry. No, 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 you go ahead first. Um, it's the same idea with the thought process of body obsession. You know, when you look in the mirror and you're going to body check or you're walking down the street and you want to glance at the reflection or you're, you know, whatever that happens to look like for you. Mm-hmm. Um, usually that is an indication that there's some feeling going on and your brain is going, mm, can't handle this feeling. I'm going to go to the conversation I'm really good at, mm-hmm. which is obsession about the body, which never goes anywhere. It's never like, oh, I, I worked through that. I fixed my body in the way that I want. Like, no, it's just endless, uh, like psychological masturbation where we just go in a circle with the same obsession. Right. That's because the brain would rather do that because it's easier than go, what am I going to do with this loneliness? What do I do with this existential grief? Yes. What do I do with the fact that, you know, my mom never, you know, all of that. You know, as a, as a coach and, and you're a coach and you're a, a therapist, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So it's, it's interesting. And I'm sure you've had this experience. Like when, when you ask a question to someone that like makes them have to like be like asking a question that totally like kind of pauses them. Like they're like, mm-hmm. it's like their brain goes on like, wait, what? wait, wait, what did you just say? Like where it's like, what would happen if you went this way instead? And the right, eating disorder right. and the brain, like the neurochemistry is like, no, because this is the way that I go that even the idea that there is a different way. Like I always, I like when I ask a question that makes them have to stop. I know. That's oh, so right. Like there is another way. Wait a minute. Right. Because the eating so, disorder has an answer for you all the time. It's, right. it's often like there's no nutrition in it, but it has an answer. So right. to interrupt that, and uh, that's that's magical. What you're saying is dead on. Right. I remember asking, and I got this from Carolyn Costin too, but like for, for people who, um, really for any urge that you might have in an eating disorder, whether it's binging, whether it's purging, whether it's like stepping on a scale, restricting, like, you know, you, mm-hmm. what I hear a lot is like, well, I had to do it. Like I couldn't stop myself, which is, I get it. But she says like, if you had a gun to your head and they were like, if you don't stop yourself, like, you know, I'm going to shoot you. Like most people would actually be able to stop themselves. And so, right. Right. And that's that moment of, of choice that, that we're working to get to where you have a split second of, or oh, can I, can I not lift my foot and step on that scale? Right. And so even, but even just like me saying that, not saying they've even gotten to the point of being able to do it yet for a second. Again, it's like, oh, they had that moment of like, oh, wait. Right. Right. Like what? There's, a, I don't, there's another way. Like it's it just. Yeah. It's, or there's a context in which my brain would overcome this. But, but I like, I like having this conversation from like the actual standpoint of neurochemistry because it's like, it makes sense, right? Like, of course, 
it's easier to just keep doing the same thing because that is the groove that you've created in your brain. And it is actually possible to create a new groove, but it takes a lot of work and it takes persistence. And like you said, it takes courage and it's, you know, it's not like a one and done type of thing. Mm, And it takes a mm -hmm. lot of, takes a lot of trust. Like you've got to trust the person that's saying that way is better go there. Even if it means you're going to have to do a lot of work to get there. Right, right. I think that's why I like the the coaching element. I'm 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 curious to know your thoughts on this. The coaching element, uh, distinct from the therapeutic element, because I think you know, as as coaches, we bring ourselves into the relationship in a little bit of a different way. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know as much about your practice, but the degree of self disclosure is totally different in a coaching relationship than in a therapeutic relationship. Right. And what we're saying from a coaching perspective is, I know where you are on that map. I know what the landscape is like. I know where the coordinates are let me walk you out of there. Mm-hmm. Whereas therapy, you're looking at sort of a, a, it's a different dynamic. It's a different conversation. There's a, you're looking at skill sets um, as well, but you know, the relationship is very, very different. Um, and right. asking someone, you know, it, let me take you here because I've been there because I'm standing where you might want to be at some point. Right. Sometimes I think of it like, um, if you're, if you're maybe a therapist who has not had one, or at least you're not disclosing, it's like trusting them being like, this is the map to it, but trusting someone who's been there before would be like, yeah, I ha- but let me actually, I've been there before. So let me just follow me. Right. You know? right, so, right. And it's great to have both. Like I think both are needed, right? So a map and someone to follow would be ideal, right? I've got the map and, um, and follow me this way. Sure. Yeah. 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 Um, it reminds me of, have you ever read the autobiography in five chapters by Portia Nelson? You ever no, read, I haven't. Read that? I'm going to read it really quickly because I'm, it's sort of like this. It's a little bit different, but I think you'll, you'll get why it, it, I'm reading it. And I think it, if anybody listening hasn't heard it, it's a great uh, poem. So it's called Autobiography mm-hmm. in Five Chapters. It's by Portia Nelson. And it says, chapter one, I walk down the street. There is a deep hole in the oh, sidewalk. Yes, yes, I fall in. I'm lost. I'm hopeless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter two, I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place, but it isn't my fault. It still takes me a long time to get out. Chapter three, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it's there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter four, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter five, I walk down another street, right? It's Mm. like, it's kind of similar. It's like, that is the habit. It's walking down that street and falling into a hole and walking down that street and falling into a hole. And eventually it's just like, you eventually learn how to walk down a different street, but it it takes time. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like, Mm -hmm. it's it's obviously easier said than done, but um, yeah. Right. By the way that you were describing, it just made me think of make made me think of that poem a little bit. Oh, that's exactly right. I I did not know that was the title of that poem. Yeah, a lot I've of people don't. Through, but... Yeah, a lot of people don't know that that's it's called autobiography in five chapters, but most people don't know that's the title. But once I start reading it, usually people are like, "Oh, right." Everyone's like, "Oh, yeah." Everyone who's been in treatment has heard that. Oh yeah, <laughs> great. 100%. And it's like a lot of people that are listening probably haven't been to treatment, so now you know. I'll um I'll oh, I'll link it in the episode notes in case someone's listening and they want to have it and read it again. Um, so I want to get into the dialogue of the twelve steps um, because, like you said, you 
you know, work, you work in the treatment field, you work with addictive behaviors and like 12 step modalities and all of that stuff. And, um, the 12 steps in terms of eating disorders and like viewing eating disorders as an addiction and like different, different terminology used around eating disorder recovery is kind of controversial. And, you know, probably more from like an actual provider standpoint than, and than someone. Right. Right. It. And at the same time, it's like, there's so much information out there that like, I remember one of my clients coming to me one day and being like, you know, you say that you're recovered, but I was just reading some, or I was talking to a friend and I was reading something and she was saying that like full recovery is not possible. And she was super confused. And so it's a conversation I'd like to have with you because I didn't recover through the 12 steps. I do say that I'm recovered and I hear mm. that the 12 steps have helped you. And you say that you're always in ongoing recovery. I believe whatever works for people is what they should be doing. Um, but I would love to Absolutely. hear how the 12 steps supported you in your recovery. Um, why saying ongoing recovery for you works better. Um, and like anything else, you know, we might be able to talk a little bit. I think there's going to be a little bit of conversation around this, but I'd love to start with just hearing, you know, how it helped you because if people are listening and they haven't gone to the 12 steps and they can't afford treatment and what they're doing is not working, this is a, like you said, it's free help. This is a potential way of like accessing recovery, accessing, stepping through the door of recovery. So, um, yeah. How did the 12 steps help you? What do you love about them? What worked for you? Um, you know, whatever you have to offer around that. Sure, sure. Well, I, you know, I, I want to start by addressing one of the reasons that, uh, that OA and EDA are, are sometimes not brought up in, uh, in ED treatment, usually. Um, and it's because, it's because there's a, a lot of misconceptions. Um, first of all, the, the spiritual aspect of it, it it's culturally overplayed. Like, yes, is there, is there a spiritual aspect that you're asked to consider? Uh, maybe there's something bigger than me. Maybe the world is not all about me. Maybe my suffering is not the most important thing. That's like the reduced version of the spirituality that this is, this is not a, you go to AA and you have to believe in God um, at all. And so that, that kind of, that kind of gets a bad rap because it's misrepresented. Mm-hmm. Another piece is that um, Overeaters Anonymous, which is the program I ended up in uh, and I encountered bulimics and anorexics and ventures. Um, and granted that's because it's LA and there's a, a wider um, population of eating disorders um, here. There's a huge concentration of it. So we had a little bit more diversity than um, we did in, in meetings when I lived back east, and it was mostly overeaters. So um, the conception in uh, from the treatment world is, oh, if we send our bulimics to Overeaters Anonymous or anorexics to Overeaters Anonymous, they're going to see people with different bodies or hear people talking about different food behaviors, and that's going to be a problem. And what I, I think I'd say to that is, but this isn't about similar food behaviors. This is about similar emotional experiences of isolation and disconnection and compulsion. Um, And that's what gets shared in the room that I think is so crucial. And that I think we can all really connect to. And again, if you're looking for someone who understands where you are on that emotional map um, and you're in an eating disorder, you're going to away. You're going to find someone who gets that. You're going to find many people who get that. Um, uh, and yes, is there a 12 step context in that? Absolutely. But if you can't afford treatment, that's where you would go to find that. Um, and I think the third misconception is that we hear this all the time that the OA meal plan is, uh, is not considered part of recovery. Um, and 
the reason that's so absurd is there is no OA meal plan. No, nowhere in the literature does it indicate here's what you have to eat. Uh, what it says in the literature is consult with a nutritionist and your sponsor to see what the right food plan is for you. you know, whether that's intuitive eating or you're someone who does find weighing and measuring helpful, whether you're someone who's like, nope, I have three meals and two snacks, and as long as I'm within that range, that's okay. You, you can use whatever meal plan is appropriate for your symptoms. Um, and in that, still benefit from the community and whatever the step work does. What I found about the step work itself is that it's, it, you're not treating the symptoms, you're treating the cause. Uh, and and in investigating, um, and it's, it's not powerlessness is the word that gets used a lot, but surrender for help. Because so often we're resistant for this. I'm going to do this myself, or um, I'm going to find a way to to do this with a path of least resistance. And what the 12 steps offer is an opportunity to surrender and not do it alone, to do it with support to do it with a community who understands the specific language of loneliness that you're speaking. And when I say loneliness, I, it could be anxiety or depression or whatever manifestation um, of, of suffering happens to be. But uh, it, it, it really does come back to here is free support for, uh, with people who speak that language. And, you know, if you want to do the steps, great. Do the steps. If you just want to sit in meetings and talk about, exactly what you're dealing with and hear people who are finding solutions to what you're dealing with, that's where I'd say go for it. I think one thing that um, I, I, I appreciate you just said is that the part of like, there's not really like an OA meal plan because that is the reason that I've often heard people not going is that they've been told, I know, I know. right? They've been told that they're going to have to cut certain things out of their diet in order to go. And, and I think what's, I think what's important to know, and obviously this depends on where you live in terms of like the amount of groups that there are, but you know, my father got, it sober. really does. You're right. No, yeah. my, fa- my father got sober through AA. My best friend got sober through AA. And, um, you know, there were certain groups that meetings that they liked and then there were certain meetings that they didn't like and there were certain meetings where like they liked all the people and they really related to them and then there's certain ones that they felt like they didn't relate to anybody that went and so I would say just as if you're trying to find a therapist and the the, like the connections important like that might be important so I imagine maybe someone wandered in at some point to an OA meeting where they were talking about cutting something out and then that became the misconception of OA at large whereas like sometimes you've got to find your people. Um, mm-hmm. And like I said, it, it depends. You know, I live somewhere where there are, I actually haven't looked up OA meetings, but I know that there are AA meetings everywhere always. Um, and that's not right. Right. Reality. Anywhere there are church basements, you're going to find AA meetings and OA meetings. And right. Sort of and, and, I, and I get that that's not everybody's reality, especially with OA, because I'm sure that there's less OA meetings than AA meetings. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And at the same time, it's like, just because you have an experience you don't like at one of the meetings doesn't mean you should write them all off as like the entire organization is all like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, cause I went to, mm-hmm. I never yep. went to, I didn't go to 12 step meetings, but I went to support groups and like some of them were awful. It took me a while to find a support group that I liked. Um, and, and some of them were terrible. And, but the mm-hmm. ones that I thought were terrible might've been good for some of the other people that were there. It's purely based on subjective bias, you know, what's going to work for totally. me it's really, versus who's yeah, there. Yeah, that, that's it. That's exactly right. 
Um, and I, you know, I, I realized I actually haven't mentioned this, um, that I, I don't actually consider myself a member of OA anymore. I don't attend meetings anymore. Um, it, I, I mean, there are a lot of reasons that went into that is ultimately I ended up transitioning to a, um, a 12 step Buddhist fellowship and then just a Buddhist fellowship. And then, you know, a, a network of recovery workers that we all support each other. So recovery evolved in so many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I needed at the time for like a solid six years was that support tied tightly around me and for me to be part of that. Um, and I, I, I like, I like that language for uh, offering that to my clients. It's, it's a phenomenal resource that I always want to present as an option to people who are struggling. Um, and, and I say it like, honestly, because it's uh, it's sort of considered taboo to say I was in program and now I'm not anymore uh, because people will uh, in program think, Oh, you're not in recovery. Look, I'm in recovery in a way that works for me. I'm not Mm -hmm. actively working the 12 steps, but I I can speak about them really thoroughly and um, I know their efficacy and I know how they've impacted me. So I, I feel like that's a disclaimer that I actually have to throw out there. Right. And I think, you know, what, often and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the AAOA, um, I don't know if you call them principles or whatever, but it, it is that you're kind of always in recovery, like recovery is an ongoing process. Um, and so I imagine that a little bit that might be where there has become like this difference in terminology versus like always in recovery versus being recovered. Um, I don't know totally, if that's where that totally. happened, like where you were, where you adapted that or adopted that for your own recovery. Um, but can you explain a little bit why for you saying I'm an ongoing recovery is what works? Sure. Um, you know, there was a time when I held to that really tightly going, no, everyone who's saying they're recovered is full of shit. And, uh, you know, I, I've, I've since like done a little bit more research and had more conversations and understood that actually there are mostly similarities between how the people who are recovered uh, or report recovered versus recovery um, describe their lives right now. It, it often, especially if there's long-term recovery or recovered or whatever, um, that, that they're really describing the same experience of release and um, you know, how they navigate whatever remains of their eating disorder. Um, I, I really think it's, it's, not as polarizing as I initially believed. Um, and I remember hearing um, Carol and Costin talk about it. And that was one of the, <laughs> that was one of the first times that I thought, mm, maybe I'm being a little bit rigid in, uh, in my judgment that, uh, that the word recovered is, you know, entitled or holier than that. Or, um, you know, I really got the idea that, oh, this, this really isn't that. This is really, really saying the same thing. It's a different relationship to the experience of recovery. That's all. For me, um, the reason I stick with that I am in recovery uh, and that particular languaging um, is because I feel it opens the door for me to be really transparent about when the noise comes up or like where, hey, I'm kind of an obsession that I haven't been to the gym in a couple of days. And to say that out loud to my husband or um, <laughs> whatever noise does remain, to, to go public with that. Um, and to allow there to be um, a sense of normalizing that, yeah, a lot of us are going to have eating disordered thoughts. And sometimes my crazy gets a little out of control when we have, uh, we'll have friends over for um, dinner all the time or like pizza and stuff. And there's a joke that uh, among our friends that 
when Molly is around food and she's really hungry and she gets really excited and they all know I have, I'm in recovery, um, that she gets what they call the FCs, which is the food crazies, meaning I am likely to accidentally drop my hand in the wrong place and send a spoon with food catapulting somewhere across the room or drop the entire pizza box on the floor trying to get it to where I need to go. Like there are manifestations of my eating disorder that still show up in ways that I started to understand are, you know, that's just what I'm working with. And can I, can I have like a loving relationship with those? Can I surround myself with friends who go, that's fucking adorable. Can, can you clean up the pizza now? Like that's the relationship with those symptoms that still show up rather than for me having to hold on to, yes, I'm, I'm recovered. I have sewn this part of my life up. Um, which, you know, I understand that the people who consider themselves recovered are not being that black and white about it. But to people in early recovery, which is the majority of the people that I encounter, um, I want to normalize how long, how complicated, and how imperfect this process actually is. And I need to, for me, I need to represent that by saying, yeah, there's still some noise. There's still some weird stuff that, uh, that goes on. Bottom line, I don't binge and purge. But my brain does all sorts of silly things that I have to kind of navigate day to day and have a sense of humor about and be honest about um, and just not be in behaviors. But I'll tell you, the noise may be there, but I'm not suffering. And that's, to me, like that's what's important. Um, and I know you, you know, you're recovered and you're not suffering. I'm in recovery. I'm not suffering. Um, it's really about our relationship to obsession and freedom. That's it. Right. Did I, did I touch on that in the way you wanted? No, 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 it was great. And um, I think that I think that's what's true, right? It's like no matter what term you use, your life can get significantly better, right? So it's like I think um, I remember when I was sick, and this is just like again, this is difference in people. Like when I had an eating disorder and I was really sick, um, I remember thinking that the fact that I would never be recovered was like very discouraging. And so for me mm-hmm. to hear someone say, no, you can be recovered, that actually motivated me. And at the same time, I can see how that might be not motivating for someone else. And that's where I think it's so important to figure out what works for you. You know, um, you're, like- you're right. You're right. So I can see how some people would find that discouraging. And it, it really is a matter of figuring out, you know, who, who is the person you're working with? And is this going to be do they kind of need a different kind of, of conversation about this where it's uh, like, it does, does saying recovered trigger that perfectionism or not. Right. Um, that's, I, I think a big piece of it. Right. And so I think like as a coach, it's good for me to know that about my clients because I, I say that I'm recovered, but if I have a client that does, doesn't work for like for the sake of my sessions with them, I'll stop saying that. And like, and that's fine with me um, because my right, goal is right. for them to access this freedom that you're talking about and whether it's saying that they're recovered or that like they're always going to be in ongoing recovery. The fact that the freedom is accessible is what's important for me to translate to them. Um, Mm -hmm. So I do think it's just, I think it's dependent. And I think if you're someone that's struggling with an eating disorder right now, like you've got to find the people that speak in a way that make you feel motivated. And that might not be me saying that I'm recovered. It might be someone else saying that, no, it's an ongoing process and vice versa. I do think what's important for people to know, um, and again, for me, I can't speak from everybody that says that they're recovered, but like... I was saying this to you. It's like, there are always 
for me, there are always voices in my head telling like, just like my, the first life coaching school that I did called them the gremlins. And they're like the, the voices in your head that just tell you like, you're not worth it. Like you're, you don't, you don't like the way that you look like this is too hard. Um, just maintain the status quo, try not to change things. You know, those voices, um, I don't know that those all ever fully go away for people. In my case, right. not ever about food. Like you shouldn't eat that or you should cut back on that or how many calories are in that. Like I never have those thoughts anymore and I haven't for mm-hmm. like six years. Um, and at the same That's time, beautiful. I have- yeah. And it's like, I have thoughts about other things though. And sometimes I look in the mirror and I don't like how I look. Um, and those voices will come in, but I, I don't know that I connect those to my eating disorder. I connect those to like being a woman in the society that we live in. And right. Right. I, I, I totally agree with that. I like that. I also connect them to just like one thing that I learned in, in treatment and in recovery is that like, if I look at myself in the mirror yesterday and I loved what I saw and I look at myself today and I hate what I see, it's got nothing to do with my body. And that took yeah, exactly a long time for me to be able to like really understand. But that understanding has made the biggest difference I think in my life because sometimes I'm bloated. Like sometimes I feel like crap. Sometimes I'm tired. And so I look at myself and I don't like what I see, but a lot of times I look at myself and I do. And so it's important for people that if you hear someone saying that they're recovered, it's not like they're madly in love with themselves all day, every day. And they've got total confidence in everything that they do. And there's never a problem in their life. Like that's not true. And I feel like if anybody, I mean, I mean, maybe that's true for certain people. I don't believe that. that I, I just don't believe that. that because, <laughs> like what you were saying, it's like, there's like a cognitive function, I think, to those thoughts, you know, like. Oh, it, very much so. Yeah, you know, and so yeah. like, I don't think those thoughts go away because those are like the drives to like improve some things. And like there, there, there are functions to those thoughts. So I don't think that they disappear. However, your relationship to those thoughts can disappear and whether it's you saying I'm in ongoing recovery and I'm going to have a conversation with a cake sometimes, or it's me saying I'm recovered. And sometimes I look in the mirror and I don't love what I see it. You know, they are kind of the same thing. And I think the, in the end, it's like what works for you. And what's important to know is like you said at the the end of your story, it's like, how do you define freedom? Like recovery really is how you define freedom and figuring Mm -hmm. out what is going to work for you to get you as free as you can possibly be. Um, but Absolutely. trying not to get so attached, like there's such a rigidity, I think in some eating disorders that it's so easy to get attached to No, I'm only going to say I'm recovered and no, I'm only going to say I'm recovering. And it's like, you know, in, at the end of the day, it's like, what's going to serve you best. Yeah. And, and they're, they're pretty interchangeable for the most part, depending on your audience. But I think in a conversation like this, like, you know, you may not have the cake conversation. Uh, and I would have you know, whatever, wouldn't necessarily have whatever body noise is showing up day to day for you. But I, I really think we're in, um, the, it's just about the mindset. Do you feel okay? Do you feel happy? Are you content? Can you have a relationship? Can you hold down a job? Right. Those are really the questions that are going to define our recovery. In your story, you know, you were talking about at one point, um, just like how, how all consuming and time consuming having an eating disorder is, right? It's like, how, what can I eat? And how many of these can I eat? And when can I eat? And if I'm going to eat, when can I purge? Mm-hmm. And where can I purge? And, and it's like, there is the possibility of being free from that. 
you know, and, and whatever that, whatever you need to call it. And whenever that looks like for you, it's like freedom's accessible. And, you know, I like being able to have this conversation because really at the end of the day, all I want for people is to know that they can feel better. You know, that's all I really want. All I want out of this podcast is like to hear stories of people that were where you were, where you were, where you are now, and they're living a life where they're free from that. And I think that the terminology is controversial and it's an ongoing debate in the treatment world. And as someone who's maybe still struggling, it's, you know, it's really your, your path to choose. And like the decision-making is what's going to, what serves me best. And so if it triggers me mm-hmm. to be recovered, I'm not going to say that. And if it triggers me to hear that I'll never be recovered, I'm going to say recovered. And, um, and I think that there's growth in that, like being able to just own, like, this is what I need in my recovery. And these are the boundaries that I'm going to set. And this is the container that I'm going to create in order to be able to get as far into recovery as I possibly can. Totally. Totally. Oh, I a hundred percent agree with that. So, um, a really graceful way of phrasing it. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, in terms of like conversation that that's mostly what I wanted to talk about. Um, is there anything that I haven't mentioned that you, that you want to bring into the conversation? Um, you, you didn't talk at all about what you do. I don't know if you want to talk about that. Um, but you know, for the next few minutes, if there's just anything that we haven't touched on that you think is important that you want to make sure is included in your episode, like floor's yours, let me know. Sure, sure. Uh, I, I can talk really briefly about um, what I do. So um, I am, uh, I, I'm trained as a therapist, my background is as a therapist, but um, I don't operate under my license because I like to be a little bit more out of the box and uh, stray on the coaching side of things than uh, on the therapy side of things. Um, so I do, uh, we do recovery consulting for tends to be complex mental health. And I, I work with, um, eating disorders, inevitably they end up being co-occurring disorders. So we're looking at uh, sometimes eating disorder and addiction or, uh, eating disorder and severe depression. Um, and sometimes just a, a straight badass eating disorder. Um, what I, what I tend to do is take the, the therapeutic material that comes up in sessions with the client's therapist uh, and operationalize it during times when they're not in therapy um, that one hour a week. So uh, some of that looks like um, basic coaching around, hey, let's go for a meal and be mindful about this, uh, to put it very simply and crudely. Uh, And some of it looks like, hey, can we break down some of these DBT skills that you've been talking about and figure out how you're going to actually utilize them in the moment? Really? Um, Because (laughs) so many of us who have been to treatment, you know, they've could run a DBT group, but actually utilizing those, that takes some in the moment uh, intervention. And um, so that's, that's mostly what I do. That's what I like about the job. Um, We also tend to work with uh, families, um, especially when their loved ones don't want to get treatment. Um, The families really need them to get treatment. Uh, We help coach the families towards the long intervention process. We don't do the the surprise intervention, um, but rather uh, like a, a long series of communications that we find have more long-term efficacy, especially around treating ED. So that's the, the bulk of the work and I absolutely love it. So, and you're based in, your work is based in LA too? Yeah, we're based in Los Angeles. I'm with uh, Patrick Hart Consultants. 
Um, and we work with all sorts of different treatment centers. We are, we are not a treatment center. Um, we do work with treatment centers. Okay. And so do you only work with people in person or do you also work with people um, virtually? No, we, we work with people virtually as well. It's more common that they're um, in town, but I frequently have clients who either start out of town or end up going out of town and a few who have been consistently out of town um, throughout the, the duration of our work together. We usually do three months or six months um, of a, an agreed contract so we can really dig into the work and um, build a relationship in the process. Cool. So I'm going to link, um, I'll, I'll get the link from you um, to that in the episode notes just in case people are curious about finding out more about you or about the work that you do. Um, and then I'll, I'll ask you later on if there's anything else to add to the episode notes. But um, other than that, any any final remarks before we get going? Just thank you so much for the opportunity to do this. I think it's phenomenal that you're providing this resource to people um, who either just want to hear the conversation or are in need of uh, additional support. Just thank you for the work that you do. It's, it's crucial. Thank you for saying that. And thank you for being on. And it's really like what I love. I loved when you said like 12 steps is free help because it's like, there's not a lot of free help in the eating disorder world. And, and so one of no, the, one right. of the reasons I started this podcast was because, you know, accessibility is something that's so important to me. And so, you know, if you can't afford treatment or there isn't treatment near you or whatever the reason might be that you're not getting help, you know, I wanted to be a resource of like, all right, let's, this is something it's free. You know, I can sign on and I can listen and I can see what I can learn and I can gather some resources and again, free help because I do think that's something that's so lacking in the eating disorder world and is so important. Even if you are able to pay for treatment, it's just the more help, the better. So um, really thank you. thank you for reaching out to me and your willingness to be on and have these conversations. Um, I think that we had a lot of interesting stuff come up and um, I'm excited to um, continue a conversation with you in the future too. You bet. You bet. You let me know how I can be of service. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you too. Take care. Thank you so much for listening today. The homework for today is to go to the AAOA EDA links in the episode notes and search for some meetings near you. Do none show up? Some of these organizations also offer video and phone meetings. See if you can locate one to five possible meetings for you to attend, whether in person, on the phone, or virtual. Just because you don't have a problem with alcohol often does not mean you can't attend an AA meeting. So if OA meetings or EDA meetings might not be close to you, you might be able to find an AA one. So again, the homework today is to go on and locate some meetings, whether in person, on the phone, or virtual, that you might be able to attend when you're really struggling struggling and you just need some free help. For more support, check out my website, alwaysabeing.com. And while you're there, take my free eating disorder recovery archetype quiz or sign up for Accept Recovery, my eight-day e-course. As always, I want to hear from you. Email me at kristin at alwaysabeing.com if you're well into your recovery or if you are recovered to be interviewed on the podcast or send me your questions. Just a reminder that if this episode resonated with you or if you think the concept of this podcast is a good one, please help other people find it more easily by rating it on iTunes, maybe leaving a comment or sharing it with other people who might also find it helpful. 